Welcome to the Lisa Burke Show with Auntie Pizza. I can't hear myself. Hello and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. So wonderful to have you with me as always. Now today, in for a real treat, I've got Dr. Claudine Alz, who is a doctor of nuclear medicine with me. She trained in Brussels and Switzerland, is a member of the National Ethics Committee and was in the City Council for the City of Luxembourg for 12 years. Claudine, it's wonderful to have you here in your role as president of the Patrimonie Rose pour le Luxembourg. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we're going to talk about roses in Luxembourg, or at least we're going to start by talking about the roses in Luxembourg. Now, many of us will have seen rose bushes around. I live in Steinzel. There's plenty of roses there. And we will have seen in Limburg uh, Rue des Roses, for example. But you're going to tell us about the golden period of roses in Luxembourg. The golden period in Luxembourg was highly important and worldwide known and renowned. It started about midst of the 19th century with two independent young gardeners who had been trained in specific rose breeding in Lyon, in the region of Lyon. They were friends and they became professional associates and they founded Support in Notting no? in, um, in Limpertsberg and they were clever and uh, witty and intelligent and worked a lot and were true independent entrepreneurs. And they had the chance right after their business start to lend three extraordinary roses, Tour de Malakoff, La Noblesse et Duc de Constantine, those roses gained medals at international rose competitions and they sold them in the whole world. So they bred those roses, they created those roses. Part, part. Part, they commercialized them for colleagues. Huh? But they are real champions of uh, rose creations because during their career over several generations, it was a, a family business, they created several hundred kinds of roses. So they are in a way the aristocrats within the rose breeding society. No? Creating a rose means much more engagement, much more work, much more patience over years, up to 10 years, than just multiplying them. Of course. And they had a fantastic working process. The um, creators were in Limpotsberg and they had a fantastic cooperation with small family enterprises, small family businesses throughout the country. Most of them in the Valley de l'Alzette or around Straßen or Steinzel, as you say, up to Ettelbrück. There was a good soil and there was an adequate climate. So the small societies had not to worry about selling their production because the big society in Limpotsberg made an order and they had the guarantee of selling everything. And the big society in Limpotsberg, they made the commercialization, the marketing, they went to the competitions, they had the contacts with the clients and the clients were mostly abroad, mostly in European countries, but also in North America, in Brazil, in Japan, in St. Petersburg, over the whole world. Which is extraordinary to think that this was happening at the turn of the 1900s. Yeah, and it is so interesting because it was possible technically only because after the London Treaty 
1867, Luxembourg opened. That means the fortress was dismantled. And that means an opening. So there was a train line built from Luxembourg towards the south, towards Thionville and Metz and further on. And that made the efficient transport of roses made it possible. That had not been the case before because a fortress city meant a closed city. Uh, very limited in space. And suddenly there was this opening. So the rose breeders were our first ambassadors in a way. Ambassadors in a commercial way, but they sold something that was truly made in Luxembourg. Such an amazing story and yes. one that I really had no idea about until I met you that lovely day. And it's stuck in my mind for so long. So I'm delighted to have you here. So how important was the rose industry to the economy at the time? <laughs> That's an, a very good question. It is very difficult today to say uh, how many people worked for it. One can only make a very cautious estimation. Probably several thousand people worked for the rose industry. It is also possible that at that time children worked for the rose breeding business because there was no really child work protection at that time. But there exist visual documents. We have published uh, this book which is a bestseller, Luxembourg, Land of Roses. And there you see also a child in an atelier of rose creation and packaging and so on. So that is uh, possible. It's difficult to say whether it's 1% or 5% or 10% of the population. I'm sorry, I cannot tell you. But, we but said it was probably relevant and it was an input of the devise, mm -hmm. foreign currencies mm -hmm. for Luxembourg. And like you say, after the opening up of the fortress city, it was putting Luxembourg on the map yes. in a very beautiful way, I must add. But we might not know how important it was in numbers to the economy, but we do know in 1900 there were about 100 hectares of roses being grown. Yeah. And in 1939, it was about 10 hectares, so a huge decline. Yes, a huge decline due to uh, geopolitics. Yeah. Like today, today with the war in Ukraine, you have also suddenly geopolitics that come back to influence trade and economy and international finance. And, and literally, in this case, decimated, to use the word correctly, decimated. Yes, yes. And at that time, it was also geopolitics. It was the onset of World War I yes. in 1914. Because Luxembourg had been a member of the Dutch Customs Union, the Deutsche Zollunion, and that had been an enormous commercial advantage for the Grand Duchy for about 80 years. But with the onset of World War I, it became a disadvantage because we were considered as belonging to the German camp. So we were considered as enemies for the main rose client for France. So they immediately put an embargo on the selling and the export of roses. And I believe France bought about 75% of the roses from Luxembourg. Possibly, yes, yes, yes. So suddenly you had no customers, it was just gone Yes, maybe the rose breeders in Luxembourg had done an error. They had not built up a faithful clientele here in Luxembourg. They had aimed their marketing only towards foreign markets. Maybe that had been a strategic error. And then during the war, people had other worries than to buy roses. And then came after the war, of course, the financial crisis, the economic crisis. So in such a situation, there is a natural shrinking down 
Uh, you cannot sell your your goods. So maybe young people don't go into this profession anymore. They choose another profession. And when there is somebody retiring, maybe they will sell the land and their houses will be built in this land. Mm-hmm. So um, it will be different. And growing up in Luxembourg, as you did, were people aware of this really great history of the roses of the country? Of course, the generation of our parents, of our grandparents, yes. I remember then in my childhood, there were some postcards showing aspects of the city of Luxembourg and there was like a a surrounding by roses on the postcards. But that was only a vague souvenir. And myself, I lived as a child in Rue de la Fayencerie in Limpotsberg, a very long garden. And that was, in fact, before the working place of the rose breeders Gemen Ebour, who had their main address was in the actual Avenue Pasteur, but their field went through and arrived in up to the Rue de la Fayencerie. And in our garden, there was still one climbing rose, which has a fantastic perfume. I still have the memory, the olfactory memory of this rose. And that was a Gemenebour rose. But at that time, I did not know. And to my mother, this rose was very important. We had no right when we were playing with the, with the ball to to. to to hurt it or to damage it. We were told to be careful so she with knew. this rose. She yes. Knew. So yes. then <laughs> there has been a resurgence, uh, an interest in trying to safeguard the rose history of Luxembourg. And since the 1980s, I know this group called Les Amis de la Rose Luxembourg, yes. um, which started. And now we also have your organization. So talk us through the increasing want to talk about the rose history of Luxembourg and, you know, to explain it to people like me and tell us what we can do. Well, the Luxembourg Rose Friends, they started about 24 years before us and they prepared the ground. And when when we started, we thought we have really to open the business, to speak about it publicly. We say in Luxembourg, to repeat the message, to, to bring it to the people's mind, to their hearts and to their gardens. Our working hypothesis is the more people plant the roses in their gardens, the more they will appreciate it, the more they will love it, and they consider it as their own. Mm-hmm. That was our aim. So our all our actions tended to speak about it, to make publicity, and then we wanted to have uh, money in our funds in order to be able to make such an important book, Luxembourg, Land of Roses. It, there is a separate French version, a separate German version, an English version. And that, of course, needs money. And we had the luck to have a very important photographer, Marianne Magerus. She is highly specialized in photographing gardens. And we had an extraordinary writer, Heidi Hochhoft, a British, German writer, highly specialized. And both ladies had already produced dozens of garden books. So really, really great professionals. And that's why our book is so important and new and original. Well, we'll put a link to that for sure. But just then for the people who are listening who are not gardeners, when should we plant roses? How should we look after them? When should we prune them? Give us some tips. Normally, you can plant roses over the whole year, except when the soil is frozen. If you plant them in autumn, 
Then you plant them in the winter form. That means without leaves. We call that the racines nues, bare, bare roots. They are delivered without earth, without soil. And then they can concentrate over the winter on making roots. The more roots a plant has, the more it will be strong above the earth. If you plant them now, that's no problem, but you have, of course, more to protect them in case there is not enough rain. You have to stay behind. You cannot leave for three weeks for holidays and let the rose alone in the dry because that might harm it. We organize each year a big uh, rose selling always in May. It's now over for May, but, but we still have some roses left. If anybody is interested via our homepage, they can reach us. And then we organize uh, pruning courses, theoretical ones, practical ones every year or in beginning of March or now when we're selling roses. So there is a possibility to learn. And if you do the practical course, you gain uh, assurance, you gain more security in, in what you do. And people then tell, tell me, oh, I have exerted like I was told, and now I feel secure, I'm, I'm not afraid anymore of pruning. And yeah, I'm are. afraid of pruning yeah. my roses. I've tried to look at YouTube yes. videos, but um, I'm not sure I'm very successful at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when it comes to gardening, what satisfaction does it give us? Do you think gardening is an important skill to have in life? Look, when we are selling roses, we have so beautiful contacts with people coming to, to buy roses. And they tell me, oh, you know, last year I bought the Grand Duc Jean and the year before I had bought the Alexandra Princesse de Luxembourg and it has grown so much, you know, it's incredible. And each day I go and see it and I'm so happy when it grows. Fantastic, it grows. So, what do you have this year? Or young people, they tell me we have inherited the house of the grandparents and you know, there is a path leading towards the front door and we want to plant roses on the left and on the right. So we will slowly, slowly put the roses and we look forward to it. And people tell me when they work in the garden, they forget everything. They forget everything. They are fully concentrated on what they do. For me, it's the same. <laughs> and uh, it's like a psychotherapy. It's like, uh, like forgetting all the sorrows, the stress and just being concentrated on the plants, on the earth. That's resilience in a way. Which is such an important aspect of your current work because you're a highly skilled, multi-talented lady. <laughs> and I know that you've, well, you can explain your work, but I know that you've got a, a book now out on resilience. But tell us the background story to why you have a book on resilience. Yes, I'm a member of a think tank. And uh, this think tank produces each year an essay on a subject related to defense, defense of the territory, defense of a nation. And um, resilience was the subject of the winter 2021. And each year somebody else does the writing. That's a big, a big job because you have to read a lot. 
And we have meetings, we discuss, and then we take notes. And slowly and slowly, you are writing a skeleton of your text. And then slowly, you are putting the meat on the skeleton, as we say in Luxembourgish. We say the same. <laughs> meat yeah. on the bones. And then we had to deliver a very dense text of 15 pages. But I had an appendix of 50 pages. So much more appendix. Gosh, we had you so read much, so much. We had so much material. And then suddenly... By giving lectures, by doing conferences also in schools and with the reactions of the students, I suddenly said, well, it would be nice to make a book. So the subject, which is so important, so interesting, so large, so multifold, might reach a bigger public. So I decided to of course, enlarge the text to search for more examples on resilience. The book has 18 chapters, for instance, food, alimentation, for instance, health, environment, energy, infrastructure, politics, finance, extremism, culture, social affairs, many, many, many subjects, always with examples on resilience. There are 200 examples in the book and always with proposals what might be do in this domain. There are about 400 proposals My God. in the book. So talk us through, let's just start with health, because I can imagine the topic of resilience came about because of the COVID pandemic in uh, 2020 to 2021. Yeah. So with health and with our food and what we eat, what can we do to be more resilient? Would you like to hear an example? I love examples. Yes. Well, for instance, with food, examples of resilience is that each year is organized a World Soup Disco Day. The aim is to gain the young people, to inform the young people, to reach them. And then they dance, no? they dance and they eat soup prepared with local vegetables grown locally. No? So it's really combining what they like to do, dancing and eating healthy, locally grown food. And that is organized each day. That's an example of uh, uh, a soup resilience. disco day. Okay, I'm going to have to think about a soup disco day. But it's also education. It's not just resilience. It's teaching the young people that uh, to eat locally and to eat fresh and to make it from scratch is important. Of course. And of to mix course. it with movement, of course. Of course. What did you learn? I mean, you're, you're a very intelligent doctor already. So what did you learn through this work? You mean the book? The yes. Book? Um, the research. Well, the deeper I, I duck in it, the more interesting I found it. And I was myself impressed how many examples there are. And um, I think one effect of the book is that we gain an awareness of how many examples of resilience there are around us. And resilience is always often the small things. People, you know, who engage in their local sports group and they work with young children to play football, for instance, or to do one sport. That is resilience. How is that resilience? Tell us how. Well, because they give their free time to, to spend with all the children and the youngsters around. They teach them how to cooperate in a group. Huh? It's not me that is important, but it's the group that is important. Huh? And the, the youngsters, if they do this sport activity together, they make friendships 
they learn solidarity, they learn cooperation. That is, for instance, very important with refugees coming. Huh? To integrate the children, refugees, there are so many coming from Ukraine, into a sports group. Uh, so we're talking not about resilience of a person, an individual, but resilience of a population. The overall aim of the book is resilience of a population, of a nation. We speak of the Grande Région. Uh, the Grand Région concerning four countries, which is unique in Europe and probably unique in the world because it has already an integrated functioning on political decisions, on transport, on um, territorial adaptations, on preserving landscape, etc., etc., and uh, education also. So is it different then? I'm thinking about Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. Is it a little bit um, different when we think of resilience for an individual compared to resilience as a population? I think, and that is one of the conclusions of the book, resilience of us all depends on resilience of every single individual. Look what is happening in Ukraine. All the people contribute, all the Ukrainians contribute to the resilience of the nation. That is the utmost example. They give their lives, they give their blood in order to save freedom, independence, democracy and to protect it from dictatorship and unfreedom. Of course, it is also extraordinary how large is the solidarity in Europe for welcoming the refugees. That is incredible. And that is probably the result of 70 years of cooperation between European nations. We have cooperated on technical matters concerning all the European businesses. And so we have learned to cooperate. And now we are all at danger because there is war on the European border. And so when you came up with your 400 proposals, with all of the work you did on this resilience paper, first of all, which became a book, give us a few of those proposals that you think are the most important to put in place. Um, there are so many. There are so many. Uh, one proposal would be, for instance, the Grande Région, formerly called Sarlor Luxe, uh, it's uh, northern France, it's the Wallonie-Belge, it's the whole territory of Luxembourg and two lander in uh, Germany. They have reached and they are still developing such an perfectionate cooperation, unprecedented in other countries, that sh this should be more highlighted throughout Europe. Our proposal is to create a specific radio station, even if it broadcasts only several hours a week, just telling of these fantastic progresses in international cooperation by four between four countries, just in order to promote this conscience in other regions in Europe. And what language would you have that in? Because, of course, you're crossing languages there. In all languages. It should be translated into all European languages. That's our proposal. And tell us a little bit more about this work that you do with the think tank, because it sounds very 
Very exciting. A lot of hard work, but clearly worthwhile because you wouldn't have taken it on if not. Well, first of all, it's an exchange. In each meeting, we are about uh, between six and, and 12 and we discuss on this matter and everybody brings information. And the one who is writing the subject of the year tries to lead the discussion group and everybody can contribute. Look, I have read this article. I have seen this book. I propose it to you. And then there is a free discussion. And then we take notes. We take notes in order to to gain more substance, to gain more information, to do uh, the writing. And then we finish with a nice dinner, <laughs> uh, which is... Um, which is very sympathetic. And often the talking continues during the dinner. Sometimes the best bits come out then, in fact. Yeah. Um, and this is part of the French think tank. Yes, it's a French think tank. Yes, we and are just a group outside of France, but the other groups are within France. And do you think because you're slightly outside of France, on the edge, do you think that Luxembourg can bring a different viewpoint, a more independent one? Uh, Possibly, possibly. I would not like to diminish what the others do, but possibly we have a, a slightly different approach and that might be more original because uh, different. And then just finally, I really want to talk about your life and how you've managed to do so much. You love <laughs> to keep busy. What is it that propels you to, to say yes to all of these activities? Well, <laughs> possibly I'm a workaholic. When you start something, you say yes because you think, oh, that is interesting and that might be an enrichment and that might open my mind and uh, you meet new people. And of course, you are never aware of how much time it will take you, how much work it will bring you and how much you have to organize your life in a more uh, strict way in order to cope with uh, such a filled agenda. Now, of course, the period of writing the book, writing a book is a more solitary work because you sit behind your computer and or behind your reading staff and, and that you do alone and then you communicate with the others. But you don't go out so much when you are in, in like a reclusion because you have to be concentrated. You have to know what is written in chapter 8 and you know that in chapter 15 there is something else in order not to mix it up. So you have to be very concentrated and not to divert yourself too much. Have you got any tips on concentration? Oh. <laughs> Who am I to give tips to other people? Well, the very fact that you can remember what you've written in chapter 8 by the time you've reached chapter 15, that yeah. shows that you can deeply concentrate. <laughs> well, um, I think the best thing is to, to love what you do, to love what you do. And to love what you do is also being resilient and to be convinced that the more you work on it, the more it's interesting and the more you polish the text, because you need to polish the text so much in order to be understandable, to have a clear message and to make the reading pleasant. I polished the text several hundred times. <laughs> it should be a pleasure to read the books. And those who have been the proofreaders, they told me it's really a pleasure to read the book. And I'm very grateful to them. They helped me to, to have a better style.
Well, it's wonderful that you've taken the time to produce that book. Just to it was an adventure. It was an adventure. The <laughs> name of the book is Résilience Potion Magique. And we will put a link to that book as well. Yes, please do so. It's produced by Shortien Edition. And just all the way back to your original and continual career in nuclear medicine, you would have, you would have been in nuclear medicine when it was quite a new field. Yes, it was quite a new field and it's so interesting. Nuclear medicine we do today is very, very different from nuclear medicine that was practiced when I was studying. That's probably the truth for all medical specializations. And that is one essence of medical history. Medical history tells us that one method considered utmost important at one epoch, maybe 20, 30 years later, it will be forgotten and not practiced anymore because there is something new and something more competitive, more efficient. That's history of science also, generally, as well of technological science of medicine, of science in, in general. You are, from what I can tell, a very healthy person. Uh, <laughs> despite so. you are radiant and uh, despite all that you take on, you, I'm sure, put health at the core. How do you stay healthy and what can we do to be resilient as a society and to stay healthy? <sighs> well, doing sports every day is certainly important. Not to smoke is certainly important. Of course, you should drink wine and enjoy drinking a bit of wine and a bit of beer. I'm not an anti-alcoholic, but of course not to abuse uh, from it. And resilience is being just uh, enjoying life and seeing life with all its advantages and with all its fantastic opportunities. We live here in paradise. We live here in paradise. We should be aware of it and be thankful for it. We live in peace. We have no bombs falling on our, our roofs, rooftops. We have enough to eat. We have clean water. We have security. That is fantastic. And we have democracy. There are every year more countries where democratic freedom is being cut down, is being limited, where you don't have the right anymore to say what you say. Did you see what happened in China when people were locked down for two months in Shanghai in their apartments and when they wanted to open the window to sing just because of necessity of resilience to sing with the neighbors? You know what happened there? There came drones, police drones, filming them and said to them, now you close your window, now you get in and you stop singing and you are fetched and you are fetched and you are uh, protocoled and there will be sanctions and you say, oh. You see how, how horrible this is and people got uh, crazy. Uh, they uh, cried in the nights and it was a horror. Well, now the lockdown in Shanghai has happily been ended, but it lasted for two months, which was like an imprisonment of 25 million people for two months. But possibly it will come back because, you know, in North Korea, People are not vaccinated, so the virus is uh, spreading, so it will go over to China again. And I'm convinced there will be other lockdowns in big Chinese cities. We are not over mm -hmm. the pandemia yet. No, of huh? course. So we need yeah. to be resilient in all sorts of ways. Um, you mentioned smoking. It's one of my bugbears. Why is it that governments will not ban smoking? 
I know it's addictive. I know it's very, very difficult for people to give up. But we all know it kills. So why, why do governments not ban it? Because we are in a democracy. We are in a democracy. You might ban it in a dictatorship, but there has never been in history of mankind a population without vices. That has never existed. There have been alcohol, there has been smoking, there has been mushroom smoking, there has been other uh, sedative drugs, even in primitive societies. So it would be an absolute illusion to ban it. And you, you know, when there was in the United States, there was in the 30s, there was this, this very strict prohibition. Mm -hmm. Well, the alcohol consume went in, uh, was en cachette, en cachette, uh, and um, people consumed bad alcohols. Yeah. And that was even more harmful the hidden, for, yeah. their, for their health. So I think a tobacco defense prohibition would be counterproductive and it's not compatible with democracy. Okay, well. We can work on persuasion. We can work on persuasion. I, as a medical doctor, I do that every day. That is one of my tasks as a medical doctor to, to tell people, you know, that is the effect of your smoking. The thing is they know they just can't stop. Yes, Yeah. Some stop from one day to another, but some others have more problems. Yes, yes. Well, on that very sad note, let's leave it with a positive note and back to roses. So if we are all to go out and buy a rose, what is your favourite rose? Ha, I like so many of them. And just do not stick to one single rose. Just have several roses in your gardens. For resilience. <laughs> For resilience and because you have a longer flourishing period, you have different colors, different textures, different leaves and different pleasures every day and enjoy them. Claudine, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute joy to talk with you and I know you're a very busy lady. So thank you for making the time for us at RTL Today Radio. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.